0: Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Last Friday delivered a huge job number, so big in fact, that it sent stocks soaring on hopes of that fabled soft landing, the Hail Mary that will save Joe Biden from himself. Sadly, there were so many devils in those details that it won't be saving anybody from Joe Biden. Charles Payne summed it best, tweeting out that the jobs report was, quote, one-third poorly paid waitresses, one-third poorly paid nurses, and one-third government jobs. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. The report's headline numbers were big. September non-farm payrolls leapt 336,000 which was almost double what Wall Street expected. The unemployment rate got worse, but at 3.8% is still historically low. So that's the good news, now the bad news. For starters, just 86,000 of those jobs were full-time. Going by the employment survey, the rest were part-time. In fact, many of them were second jobs, which currently make up almost 40% of new jobs. Over the past three months, full-time employment has actually dropped in the United States, by almost 700,000, while part-time jobs are up 1.2 million. In other words, people are taking second jobs to make ends meet, and that gets counted as record job growth. At this point, over 8 million Americans hold multiple jobs because they need the money. Almost half a million Americans now have two full-time jobs. So many jobs, you gotta take two. By the way, the last three times full-time employment fell that hard was 2001, which is right before the dot-com recession. Then again in 2008, which was just before the global financial crisis. And then 2020, when governments bought us in instant depression. So spot the pattern. Beyond that night shift miracle, the other shoe to drop was people who aren't working. Workers who are either unemployed or out of the workforce took another flying leap just the past two months, unemployed Americans are up over half a million, which is almost 10%. Meanwhile, between four and a half and five and a half million Americans remain out of the workforce. That's three and a half years after the pandemic. My colleague E.J. Antoni worked out what the unemployment rate would be if we included those so-called discouraged workers who have given up. And it comes to an unemployment rate of around six and a half percent, 6.3 to 68 which is right in line with previous recessions, given that companies hoard workers in the early days. Finally, job composition. In the last employment report, I characterized the new jobs as government workers and DoorDash, and this month kept it up. Fully 22% of the new jobs were government workers, who are, of course, parasites who collect a paycheck to crush the rest of the economy. The rest of growth was almost entirely from services especially government-related services like education and healthcare, The actual productive economy naturally shrank. Manufacturing was down once again, while professional and business services, trade, and transportation all shrank. So what's next? What's next is we are seeing surprisingly bad jobs numbers to be so early in a recession. So going by history, it will get a lot worse. And keep in mind, we don't know what happens in a coordinated global recession with $33 trillion in debt, paying over a trillion interest, along with a potential oil price explosion on the horizon. They do not have a script for this, but they'll keep pushing until it breaks so the rest of us get to pick up the pieces. After the Israeli attacks, what is next for oil prices? And what does it mean for the U.S. economy and for U.S. households? In recent videos, I mentioned how oil was already up roughly 30% in a matter of months because Joe Biden and his European clown car have crushed domestic production, which gave OPEC a green light to cut its own output since they don't have to worry about American shale drillers stealing market share. Those rising oil prices were already undoing the Fed's alleged progress on inflation. Progress that was bought at the cost of our banking system, now effectively pre-bailed out with taxpayer dollars, and at the expense of our productive economy, shriveling even as federal deficits artificially boost that GDP. The attack on Israel has now scrambled even that grim chessboard. With a death toll currently approaching 1,000 people, including women and children, This is already being called Israel's 9-11, and we're already seeing signs the conflict could spread far beyond Israel. With the U.S. sending warships, the Wall Street Journal reporting direct involvement by Iran, and many Muslim countries, including Saudi Arabia and Turkey, so far failing to clearly condemn the terrorists. This evokes memories of the Saudi-led Arab oil embargo during the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which tripled oil prices and it fed into the worst economic crisis for Americans since the Great Depression. So two days after the attack, Goldman Sachs put out a research note laying out potential scenarios for oil prices. They predict a 20% rise to $100 a barrel, but they also note it depends how far the conflict spreads. Bloomberg, likewise, said oil prices will rise somewhat in the short term, but, quote, all eyes are on Iran. Analyst Alpine Micro was more alarmed, saying the conflict will, quote, very likely escalate and predicting oil at potentially $150 per barrel, roughly twice what it's been, with knock-on effects across tens of trillions of asset markets. So what is next? The key is how far the conflict spreads. On the one hand, Saudi Arabia wants to normalize relations with Israel in contrast to their hostile stance in the 70s. On the other hand, Iran in 2023 is a potential nuclear threat to Israel. So a spreading conflict is indeed very likely. That could interrupt the global flow of crude even if there is no formal embargo. Which takes us right back to the Saudis who could, in theory, boost their own or OPEC's output to make up for Iranian disruptions. But that could be hard with public sympathy in Saudi Arabia for the attackers. So a lot depends on those Saudis right now. And by the way, that would be the same Saudis who Joe Biden just screwed over with his election-buying drain of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which also, by the way, would come in really handy right now, considering that America is running on precisely 17 days of oil in their Strategic Reserve. Either way it goes, this is a bloody reminder that the world is becoming a much more dangerous place Fast. An unsustainable mix of Washington's reckless fiscal, economic, and foreign policies were problematic a week ago. They are significantly more dangerous today. A word from our sponsor. IRA is an investment vehicle that can save you a lot on taxes if used correctly. With Unchained, you can hold real Bitcoin in your IRA, and it's the only company where you hold the keys and can verify that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated or re-lent out. We've recently seen that futures-based ETFs dramatically underperform holding Bitcoin, so why settle for an underperforming asset? Go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. Yesterday I talked about what the attacks on Israel could do to oil prices. What about the rest of America's economy? So markets are still digesting the wider implications of the attacks, but we have a couple data points to help estimate what could happen to stocks, bonds, hard assets like gold and Bitcoin, and the US dollar, which has already had a very eventful year. The first data point is Russia's invasion of Ukraine 18 months ago. The second, the worst case, is the Yom Kippur War in 1973. That was the last time that Israel was at war first, Ukraine. In the wake of Russia's invasion last year, worldwide, stocks fell, gold and Bitcoin jumped, the dollar got stronger, and bond rates soared. To break those down, stocks always fall, and the dollar always gets stronger when there's a global crisis. So people get nervous, and they park their money in dollars. For example, even in the 2008 crisis, the dollar got much stronger, even though the crisis was, by all accounts, coming from the U.S., Plus, crises can hit profits, which is fundamentally why stocks are supposed to have value. Also in a crisis, hard assets like gold or now Bitcoin typically also go up. People are nervous and they want to park their money. Plus, crises can raise government spending, which tends to lead to inflation. Bonds, on the other hand, typically fall. In other words, their yield goes up. That's because while investors are nervous, cash is even safer than bonds. Plus, the expected inflation. So all of those happened in Ukraine, but it turned out the moves were very short-lived. Essentially, markets priced in the worst case, which might have been an escalation beyond Ukraine's borders or something involving unconventional weapons. When that did not happen, they calmed down. So in raw numbers, immediately after the invasion, U.S. stocks fell 20%, gold jumped 12%, Bitcoin leapt 30%, The dollar gained almost 5% and the 10-year bond nearly doubled in yield. But by October, stocks had already recovered half what they lost. Gold and Bitcoin were actually lower than pre-invasion. And the dollar had lost almost all of its gains. The only number that stayed high was the 10-year bond, but that's driven more by Fed rates and the question whether Uncle Sam intends to repay its debts. So, back to Israel. Yesterday, I mentioned the key question is how far the conflict spreads. If it is as contained as Ukraine, then I think long-term impact on markets will be muted, therefore long-term impact on the economy. If, on the other hand, the conflict spreads to Iran, or if it ropes in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, they would be looking at something much more serious. For that, our last data point is the 1973 Yom Kippur War which featured a full oil embargo of the West and sent oil prices from $3 to $13. In fact, ultimately on their way to $37. That, of course, launched the worst economic crisis in 50 years for Americans. So what's next? For the real economy, everything depends how far the conflict spreads. If it is contained, we will get drama on markets, but little on the real economy. If, on the other hand, regional powers in the U.S. are drawn into a deeper war, we could be looking at oil dealing a catastrophic hit to inflation, which would drive the Fed to pull out all the stops and hike interest rates to economy-crushing levels we haven't seen since Paul Volcker. We'll get a lot more information in the coming days, but it's probably not a bad idea to dial down risk, put on the storm shutters, and keep a close eye on events. The trillion-dollar vote-buying scheme, that is Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness, is in full swing. With the Washington Free Beacon recently reporting on the Democrat Florida Senate candidate who wants her tens of thousands of student loans covered by taxpayers, despite her owning a $3 million house in Miami. The background here is that the $2 trillion in student loans, is one of the biggest assets of the federal government, meaning one of the biggest assets owned by taxpayers, who are otherwise on the hook for roughly $33 trillion in federal debt. Three months after the Supreme Court struck down Biden's student loan handout, saying it's unconstitutional and therefore illegal, at which point Biden's army of lawyers got to work finding any loophole they could to, apparently illegally, forgive as much as they can. So far, Axios says they have handed out, forgiven, $127 billion with much more to come. Keep in mind this is on top of the roughly $350 billion in loan deferral they got from pandemic-era loan pauses. It's worth noting that the pandemic didn't actually have anything to do with student loans, but never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, this trillion-dollar theft of taxpayer assets bothers some people since college grads earn a lot more than the median taxpayer who is currently being robbed. In fact, starting salaries for college grads is higher than the median American family, while average income comes in 30% higher for people with college degrees than the taxpayers who they are taking money from. For people with doctorates, who are the biggest beneficiaries of taxpayer handouts, their income is nearly double the suckers who are now paying off their student loans. Our system is fond of giving free money to rich people, ask the Federal Reserve or the Senate, but it is usually done with a bit more subtlety. Of course, that's just the start, because the loans were already deeply subsidized even before they were forgiven. Between 2006 and 2013, the interest rate on student loans was less than half what it was for regular consumer loans. Toss in automatic deferments until well after graduation, and it means almost two-thirds of a student loan is already pre-forgiven through sweetheart interest rates, courtesy of the low-income suckers who pay for it. Of course, millions of those loans are, beyond that, forgiven right out the door. If you work for the government or its alliance of nonprofits, you don't have to pay your loans. The deep state does take care of its own. So what's next? What's next is the Biden administration will continue draining the Treasury to buy any vote in sight, selling off the national wealth from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is down a half. That was in order to buy the last election. Two trillions in student loans to buy the next election. Loans which, rightly, belong to the struggling taxpayers who spend trillions of dollars for decades building it all up. This administration knows who it serves. The activists and lobbyists who magic it into the White House. They'll keep taking everything they can from anybody they can to keep that going. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Known for their competitive pricing, customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself, I hope you'll give them a try. Go to MoneyMetals.com to learn more and use coupon code Peter to get $10 off your first purchase of gold or silver. Recently, the Wall Street Journal published an article worrying that soaring yields on government debt could derail that fabled soft landing. We'd already seen rising warnings that bond yields could soar to double digits, which we last saw in the 1970s. Specifically, analysts are worried about the 10-year yield, which measures how much interest the federal government has to pay on its 10-year bonds. These are a big hunk of the national debt, but more important, the 10-year is a key benchmark for the cost of borrowing across the entire economy. So mortgages, car loans, business loans, even credit cards are all pushed up if the 10-year rises. If all of those rates rise, then companies, and especially small businesses, are choked off from lending, which is the standard trigger for a recession. What's worrying the journal, what's really worrying all of Wall Street, is that the 10-year is hitting the highest level since the subprime mortgage crisis in August of 2007, which, of course, led to the global financial crisis. Moreover, the 10-year is soaring fast. In just six months, it's gone from 3.3% to 48 meaning in just six months, it got almost 50% more expensive to borrow money going by the 10-year. Now, this is concerning because there's always a delay between higher rates and recession. The reason is because companies continue using the old cheap money that they already had It's only when they run out and need new financing that they hit the wall and start dropping like flies. So a soaring 10-year is like putting up a brick wall 10 miles down the highway. You're fine for now, but something bad is coming. So why are rates soaring? There's two reasons. Stubborn inflation and out-of-control federal deficits. The inflation makes markets think the Fed will keep rates higher for longer while the deficit was currently on track to two trillion per year, make investors begin to wonder if Uncle Sam will actually pay them back. suddenly, in case you had any remaining confidence in our economic leaders, the journal quoted a number of experts, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, saying they have no idea why the ten-year is rising. As Janet put it at a recent CEO conference, "quote It's a great question." And it's one that's very much on my and the administration's minds. Top men. They'll need to pay some more professors, perhaps, to come up with new scapegoats. So what is next? What's next is the coming months are going to give us two things that could pull the ten-year in opposite directions. On the one hand, soaring federal debt will continue, which will drive rates up. With yet another war to pay for, they could even get worse. On the other hand, we have a Fed running around like a headless chicken, flipping from hike to cut to hike. I recently mentioned Fed officials who were warning of yet more interest rate hikes, but they flip-flopped immediately after the Israel tax to hints of rate cuts. Of course, they will have to flip again as inflation keeps going. At some point, investors will not believe Washington. They won't believe Uncle Sam will pay them back, But more important, they won't believe the Fed actually knows what it is doing. That richly deserved loss of confidence could overwhelm even Jerome Powell's mighty money printers, sending borrowing costs and the U.S. economy spiraling towards the catastrophic double-digit rates we last saw in the 1970s. What would America look like if we returned to the gold standard? It is easy to talk about the catastrophes unleashed on humanity by paper money, the inflation, the recessions, the predatory governments. What's harder for most people to imagine is what would a hard money world look like? In other words, what are we fighting for? Fortunately for most of human history, in fact, up until just 50 years ago, we lived in a hard money world. And for the first 150 years of the republic, we did not even have a central bank. So it is not science fiction. In fact, it's completely normal. It is the standard state of affairs. Today is the experiment, and we are the guinea pigs. So what did the world look like? For that, we go back to the late 19th century, the period specifically between 1879 and 1913. 1879 was the reestablishment of the gold standard, and 1913, of course, is the founding of the Federal Reserve, when it all ended. In short, it was the greatest golden age, not just for America, but literally for humanity. Essentially, the entire modern world was invented in that 35-year stretch. Electricity, automobiles, telegraph and telephone, airplanes, steam turbines, video, wireless communications, applied magnetics, broadcasting, plastic, stainless steel, the first computer. In fact, every science fiction miracle that Elon Musk unleashes upon the world is built on that golden age. So electric cars in 1890, solar panels 1888, rockets 1903, mobile phones 1908, undersea tunnels 1885, even subways running in pneumatic tubes in New York at the turn of the century. We went from Pony Express and horse-drawn carriages to cars and traffic jams in just 35 years, from handwritten letters to radio and telephones— from whale oil and candles to gas stoves we still use today and entire walls of light bulbs splashed across Broadway while central heating warmed the nearby skyscrapers, all in a single generation. Compare that to today. In the past 30 years, we've invented very little. Sure, regulators finally let us use the Internet, which was fully functional by the 1950s, and we finally got mass-produced mobile phones nearly a century After they were invented. Otherwise, we've been almost like medieval monks tinkering with mysterious Roman inventions we found in old books. All those inventions, of course, translated into widespread prosperity. Murray Rothbard estimates that in the peak deflationary stretch from the 1870s to the 1890s, America had annual GDP growth of about 6.8% per year, which is between three and five times what they manage today. So, what is next? Whether hard money comes in the form of gold, silver, or even Bitcoin, it would be the most momentous gift we could give to future generations. It ends the rot, it restores our freedoms, it shrinks the government, and ends the permanent crisis. It restores the optimism and progress we have lost. In short, it would be one of those moments in history that changes everything. The Atlanta Fed just put out a new report saying home ownership affordability has fallen to a new record low. It has never been worse. even lower than 2006, which was right before the subprime mortgage crisis, that kicked off the global financial crisis. According to the Atlanta Fed, it currently takes 44 percent of pre-tax median household income to buy the median house. Note, that's pre-tax. That's after. Uncle Sam got their hunk, so you are left with less than half what you got paid. In some cities, it's actually a lot worse. In Boston, it's 50% of pre-tax. Miami is at 55%. New York is at 63%. And LA and San Francisco are hitting 84% of pre-tax income for the median house. That's almost nine-tenths of what you earn. So good luck with groceries. You would literally have to eat the house. Sadly, they do not make gingerbread that big, so at this point it is only the rich who are buying and passing it on in rent. So what's driving it? Fundamentally, like so much of what's sending us over the cliff, federal spending, which drove up inflation, which then drove up house prices. The Fed's zero interest rate policies piled on top since houses get more expensive with the cheap mortgages that low rates bring. Sadly, at this point, those cheap mortgages are long gone. They're hitting roughly 8% now, but they left the prices behind since now sellers are locked in by those 8% mortgages, which means that home prices are stuck. They're not coming back down because nobody is selling. So they broke it, then they fixed it by breaking it some more. Finally, on top of those 8% mortgages and those $400,000 starter homes property taxes and insurance are both growing like a cancer, adding thousands on top for homeowners. Now, property taxes rise in lockstep with your home price, so they've risen about 30% in the past couple of years, while home insurance is actually rising so fast that millions of Americans are literally skipping home insurance and praying for the best, going naked in the industry lingo, and I talked about that in a recent video. Taken together, the prices the mortgages, the taxes, and the insurance have nearly doubled the cost of owning a home in just two and a half years. Of course, note that all of those costs get passed on even to low-income renters, meaning you cannot escape housing costs unless you either move back in with your parents or you live under a bridge, which, in fact, many Americans are currently doing. Meanwhile, on the other side of the ledger, wages are not keeping up with inflation, lagging almost 8% over the past three years. So housing costs doubled, but your salary only buys 92 cents. So what's next? What's next is rates are stuck because of inflation and because of runaway deficits that are already making bond investors nervous. Stuck rates mean expensive mortgages, and that means stuck prices. Even if the Fed does cut rates for the new war, with inflation running hot, they can't cut very much. Meanwhile, incomes will take another beating once we hit the recession and jobs start to drop. So expect expensive housing, lower wages, and plenty of crowded underpasses. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And visit com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.